Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Civics Podcast, where we explore how the gospel equips us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm Rick Barry, co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and I'm glad you're with us today. We'll be bringing you an interview with Dr. Peter Baker of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, and we'll take some time to pray together for the effect Christians are having on our political process. But first, I want to take a few minutes to talk about two stories that were all over my social media feed this past week. The first was about what would usually be a pretty boring event, the Senate nomination hearing for Russell Vogt, who was nominated by President Trump to the White House Office of Management and Budget. This kind of thing would normally be pretty pro forma. A reasonably qualified person is nominated, background checks happen, the nominee submits some statements and written answers to questions to the Senate committee before the hearing, and then some follow-up questions are asked in person at the hearing. But... This one made waves. It made waves because last year, Vogt's alma mater, and yes, in a political story, his last name is actually Vogt, but last year, his alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school, was going through some controversy. One of their professors had made statements about Islam that the powers that be at the school had determined were in conflict with the statement of faith that teaching faculty there have to adhere to. After some back and forth, they began the necessary process to fire the faculty member. In response to all of this, Vogt, as an alumni, wrote a letter to a magazine and blog defending the school's decision. He said that Muslims, quote, do not just have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected his son and stand condemned. Now, the more missionary-minded among us are probably going to want to stop this whole thing right here and wonder whether someone can really be said to have rejected God's son if they've never heard the gospel coherently proclaimed or if they've never been exposed to a thriving, spirit-filled Christian community. But we're going to leave that question alone for now, because so far, this is all just background to the real story. The real story came during last week's nomination hearing, when Vermont Senator and 2016 presidential primary candidate Bernie Sanders brought up that passage from Vogt's article, and he brought it up over and over again. He repeatedly asked Vogt, whether he really believes that all Muslims stand condemned, and if by extension that means that he believes that Jews and anyone else who doesn't share his faith stand condemned. Without giving an outright yes or no, Vogt tried to provide some lay-level theological context for his statements, and Senator Sanders offered this response. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee um, is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no. 
That was a U.S. senator and a Democrat telling a prospective government employee that he's not fit to serve because of the doctrines of his faith. That didn't sit well with a lot of people, and articles popped up in most newspapers and magazines that cover politics or religion. A friend who works in D.C. and who follows our organization even dropped me a line to flag one for me from the Atlantic. And some people on my Facebook feed shared articles or clips and vented about the moral or constitutional problems with the exchange, while others complained about their own experiences being alienated as Democrats, or jumped on it with an aha, like they were citing it as yet another piece of evidence that the Democratic Party or progressive politics are, in their view, inherently incompatible with Christian faith. But then there is this other story that also kept popping up this weekend. This whole unfortunate bit of political theater ended up happening just as uh, a flurry of articles, some of which were probably in the works for weeks, came out about the rise of Christian political progressives. The general narrative was that believers who always considered themselves more sympathetic to more liberal approaches to government were trying to use the current political turmoil as an opportunity to sort of rebrand their faith and maybe persuade church members who are reliably Republican to consider switching sides, as it were. So my big question in all of this is, How the heck are these two stories possible at the same time? How can you have a major center of gravity for a political party, and Senator Sanders is a center of gravity for the Democratic Party? He may not be the only center of gravity, but he is a center of gravity. How can you have a major center of gravity for a political party on one day, say that orthodox, believing Christians are not what this country is supposed to be about, and then have a bunch of orthodox-believing Christians on the very next day tout their commitment to working with and supporting that very same party. I think this is as good a time as any to introduce Dr. Peter Baker. Dr. Baker is the director of the American Studies Program with the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. The American Studies Program is a sort of a semester abroad program, but it takes place here in D.C. Students spend a semester in D.C. working at an internship and taking classes through ASP, where they develop a deeper understanding of Christianity and democracy. One of the first topics Dr. Baker and the other professors ask the students to learn more about each semester is institutions. An institution is an organization or system or tradition that's bigger than any one person that would still go on without any given individual involved. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Dr. Baker and asked him to walk me through the kinds of things he thinks Christians should consider when we look at and try to make moral decisions about the institutions around us. And I think parts of that conversation might be helpful for untangling the mess we might have felt looking at our social media feeds this weekend, if your social media feed was anything like mine. 
Dr. Baker and I will go on to talk a little bit about how to understand institutions from within the story of God's redemption. But first, we're going to jump into the conversation right as Dr. Baker outlines four key traits that he says institutions all share. You know, of all the books I've read in academia, um, there's a a recent book by Andy Crouch called Plain God. Uh, Andy Crouch is the senior editor over at Christianity Today. And I have found this book to be as useful as anything else I've read on a, a really nice basic breakdown of what we mean by institutions and its core features. And Andy highlights four key features that can help us identify and appreciate institutions as we encounter them. The first one is artifacts, that there are, you know, these physical representations. And let's use the illustration, like Andy does in the book, of football. We recognize the institution by particular artifacts, this leather-bound ball with its beautiful stitching, by the helmets with the logos, by the uniforms with the logos, by the pads. Um, There are certain artifacts that go along with the game that help us recognize the institution when we encounter it. There's also number two, the second type of feature is the arena, that there is a physical space um, that the institution occupies. So number three would be um, the rules, uh, that there, there are rules that pattern behavior. And, and number four is roles, rules and roles, R-U-L-E-S, R-O-L-E-S. And, uh, and I always you know, see those things as so closely um, associated with one another. People aren't just on a football field in the game of football, again, for an example, but there are positions and each position is well-defined and, and there are rules that define um, what people in that position may do, what they may not do, what they must do. Those are the components of institutional life, but you could apply that to politics. You can apply it to family life. You can um, apply it to church, university. All those things do come together to um, give an institution uh, its particular character and form. And, And this is something I emphasize most specifically with students to help them understand that you can never escape institutional life, that institutional life is part of our earthly existence 24-7, 365. And for example, right now you and I are sitting across from these tables and we're relating to one another in by the fact that I, you and I sort of are living into the roles of peers, of colleagues. But it's likely, I, I think it's worth acknowledging that you and I might be relating differently if I were your father and you were my son, or if I were your pastor and you were my parishioner, or if I were your senator and you were my constituent, that those roles would define a certain set of expectations. We might address each other differently. We might respond to questions and answers differently because we understand that in this conversation, our our roles are different and with that, our patterns of behavior expectations are different. And so the key is how do we acknowledge the the different hats we wear all day long? I'm Peter Baker. I am married. I am a father of three. I am a professor. I have a supervisor. I am a supervisor. 
And I am constantly sort of stepping in and out of those different roles or positions. And each position comes with it, its own expectations, the rules of the game, if you will, about what I may or may not or must do. As a father, there are certain things I have to do for my kids that I'm not obligated to do for the team that I supervise. Um, there are rules and regulations that, you know, let's say shape how the supervisor may discipline me if I make a mistake versus how my wife may <laughs> sort of address a mistake I make in our relationship as a father or a husband. Um, so we are constantly 24 7, 365, um, our identity and, and the behavior, the expectations, the responsibilities and the behaviors that stem from that are shaped by the roles or positions that we occupy. And, um, and, and so the key is, can we, can we, number one, gain a sense of awareness of that fact? And then number two, the tricky part is working out the details. Okay, then what are the proper expectations? What is a proper sense of responsibility? What it means to be a husband or a father? How do we answer those questions when it comes to what may I do? What may I not do? What must I do in order to live into this role as God has sort of ordained it in my life? So you had said that a lot of your students uh, come in initially very skeptical of institutions or very mistrustful of them. Uh, what are some of the reasons behind that? Right. You know, because I, I think they, they've grown up observing the 2008 financial crisis. And I think, you know, most everyone was personally affected that in, in some way, shape or form. They either saw their parents lose work or aunts and uncles lose work or grandparents, um, you know, fearful for their, for their pensions. And, uh, and we all lived under that stress. And, and so that certainly I think has played a, a huge role. And then just kind of the, Watching politics, I think, you know, what the literature suggests, I, I'm certainly not the the one who is offering this as my own personal insight, but you, you read a number of accounts of people observing that the Obama administration, when the election of Obama was such a, a high in terms of there, there was a historic moment here, right? And that maybe we're turning the corner and it doesn't have to be politics as usual. And it's exciting to see, you know, what might we be able to accomplish in this new era of, you know, post-racial America. We, we heard a lot um, being bandied about. And, and then what we saw was, you know, eight years of more divided government. And I, I think people on all sides uh, were really disappointed by the lack of governance and lack of progress on any issues, meaningful progress. And, and, uh, and so that was very demoralizing, um, dispiriting for, for this generation, realizing that, oh, you know, an election doesn't produce change necessarily. And uh, so those kind of, I think, lessons learned have been hard lessons to work through. And But I will also say this, that when we do present them a different story about institutions, right? Because I think there's this prevailing story that institutions let you down, that they're corrupted, that they are, the structural injustices they perpetrate are impenetrable. And there's a cynicism that goes along with that. 
And, um, and that's what's steering this generation to look for alternative means to make a difference. But when they come to ASP and, and we are part of a larger community of folks trying to tell a different story about what institutions are, where they come from, and God's purposes for them, that they actually get it quite quickly, that they're actually quite willing to shed the old narrative of institutions don't matter or institutions are evil and consider, and it is a consideration. It's, we don't just, you know, students don't just flip the switch right away, but they're very happy to consider spending a semester exploring, you know, a different narrative for God's purposes for institutional life, how they contribute to our flourishing and how even though they, like us, are wrapped up in in sin and, and our story of the fall, but they are also wrapped up in God's salvation story. Um, and what does it mean to relate to them as part of the ongoing work of the Spirit um, as we point to what's coming? And, uh, and so I'm constantly encouraged by, by that fact. So if institutions have let an entire generation down for as far as they can remember, why should Christians care about institutions? Yeah, Christians should care about institutions because God cares about institutions, and <laughs> and we're called to care and love the things that God cares about and, and loves deeply. Often at the surface, what we'll hear from students is, well, we know that God is a personal God. That's what makes one of the things that makes Christianity so compelling. God knows each one of us by name, knows every hair on our head. We also know that community is really important to God, that God called a community into being and that salvation is always in the context of community from the time of Abraham's calling and God is the God of nations. Okay, but where does institutions fit into that? Um, do they at all? Don't institutions get in the way of individual flourishing, individual freedom? Don't institutions get in the way of social justice or community well-being? And to that, um, we, we point to some passages in Ephesians and Galatians, but uh, most, most prominently the book of Colossians, where Paul talks quite a bit about what the, how the Bible refers to institutions, which is this phrase that in many translations um, gets translated as the powers and principalities or the rulers and authorities of this world. You know, to paraphrase Ephesians 6.12, I think it is, brothers and sisters, our battle, our struggle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with our neighbor. Our battle is against the powers and principalities or the rulers and authorities of this world. And Paul, you know, there's some debate on this, of course, but I'm of the mindset and, you know, again, leaning on um, a, a rich, robust literature on this, that he's referring to these superhuman entities, that, that Durkheim, um, the social facts, that there, that there are these structures of social life um, that, you know, whether, again, depending on your theological convictions and traditions, are they, are, have evil spirits sort of corrupted them? Are they autonomous on their own? You know, we can sort of debate that, but um, that there there is this reality that's beyond simply 
God, angels, and and human beings, and that there are these superhuman entities, these powers and principalities. Most notably, though, I think the book of Colossians is most helpful because what the book of Colossians does in in chapter 1, the passage from verses 15 to 20, talks about how the powers and principalities of this world, the rulers and authorities, the kingdoms, um, the seats of authority, that these were all part of God's creation that all things were created by Christ for Christ, that all of these things hang together in Christ, and that through them Christ is glorified. And so that's that's critically important to understand that powers and principalities aren't don't originate from the fall. That's not where they find their source of origin. But that these social facts, as we read the whole story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, beginning in a garden and ending in a city, that we see that to be human is to live in community and that these institutions, these social facts emerge and come to life and that they provide the order we require as human beings to flourish in community, both as individuals and as a society. Um, So Colossians 1, critically important. These things are for Christ, by Christ. They hold together in him. Colossians 2, though, um, again, I think it's verse 8, we, we see the powers and principalities reference in, in verse 15, where Paul says they're also affected by the fall, just like you and me, that Christ exposed the powers for who they were, that the political system of the day, right, claimed to be acting on God's behalf. We are, you know, we are here for your flourishing. And yet, of course, it was the state actors that nailed Christ to the cross. Often we see the religious powers of the day claiming to be acting on God's behalf, that these religious institutions can play God in our life. And yet it was the Sanhedrin that played this critical role in nailing Christ to the cross. Even this beloved thing that we take so much pride in, like the institution of democracy, right? It was the will of the people to nail Christ to the cross instead of Barabbas. Um, All these institutions in life were exposed for what they are, which is not immune from the fall, but rather wrapped up in that story with us as well. So we should care about institutions because Scripture says God cares about them and that they're they need care and they need maintenance. Mm. They can't be, they can't function well without um, Christians acting within them redemptively. Is that fair? Right. And so if, you know, we often hear about the biblical narrative being organized into these four chapters, if you will, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Um, there are other We'll just settle on those four for now. And so, yeah, institutions wrapped up as we are, as our communities are, in that same story. So that there are, there is a a redemptive opportunity that Christians, through our participation in institutional life, can bring healing and restoration to institutions that are bent towards evil. And and we do so, though, with sort of that humble realism that they, like us, are in this period of waiting, of, you know, groaning, if you will, and, until Christ comes again and is able to consolidate and solidify total restoration. So it's um, when we talk about the salvation, it, 
the salvation story, the salvation um, work of God, that institutional life is wrapped up. There's opportunity for new institutions to be created in the spirit of creation. There's an opportunity for broken institutions to be healed, for failed institutions to be um, raised from the dead, if you will. Um, and that, that it's just our work to sort of align our life with the will of God, to live in the freedom and in the power of the kingdom that is here. Um, that there's just no way for us to live in that freedom and live in that power without there being implications for institutional life because all of life is lived sort of in, in this institutional context like we explained a little earlier. That was part of a conversation I had with Dr. Peter Baker, and it sheds some light for me, at least, as to how to process and understand the relationship between these two very different stories we talked about at the top of the podcast, these stories that seem so at odds with one another. If God's creative work didn't stop with the creation of man and woman— if the structures and the societies of this world in some way find their origins in Christ or through Christ or for Christ, if our institutions are really caught up with us in this story of a creation that's broken and longing for the return of the creator, if our institutions, if all of creation really is groaning for repair and for reconciliation— then it makes sense for some Christians to be really committed to institutions that are broken. It makes sense for Christians to want to highlight the after-images of God in places where it might be unexpected. It makes sense to make the influence of the gospel felt even in places where figureheads say it isn't wanted. Dr. Baker and I were actually able to talk for a little bit longer, and our conversation moved on to uh, talking about the differences in how we should relate to institutions that are expressly commissioned in Scripture, institutions like the family and the church, the state, um, and how we should approach institutions that aren't commissioned in Scripture. Um, those would be things like our political parties, or if you belong to like a dance troupe, I think is one example we used in the conversation. There's a lot more in there that I think is helpful and interesting, and if you'd like to listen to it, we're going to be sending it out to our partners and our supporters in a few weeks. So you can visit christiancivics.org, make a one-time contribution or become a monthly supporter. And we're going to send out um, some excerpts from the rest of that conversation as kind of a bonus episode of the podcast uh, in probably early to mid-July. Now, before we end this episode, I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer. We're going to be praying for ourselves. That's for me and for you, as well as for the men and women, the brothers and sisters who are around us and in our lives. Uh, and specifically, we're going to be praying for our growing relationships with the institutions that 
touch our lives and that we touch. Before we get started, I'd like to invite you to read along with me. I'm going to read Job chapter 29, verses 12 to 16, and then we'll go right into prayer together. For I would free the poor who cried out, the orphan with no one to help him. The perishing man's blessing would reach me, and the widow's heart I made sing. Righteousness I donned, and it clothed me, like a cloak and a headdress my justice. Eyes I became for the blind, and legs for the lame I was. A father I was for the impoverished, a stranger's cause I took up. Please join me in prayer. God, even as the world around us changes, as the circumstances of our neighborhoods, our towns, our cities, our states, and our government changes, uh, as it seems like the ground around us is shifting sand, you are today who you were at the foundation of the world. Even in Job, a book written thousands and thousands of years ago, it testifies to the same manifestations of justice and compassion and righteousness that you would set a vision for through the prophets, that your son would proclaim and that your church would make known in the most broken places of this world for thousands of years. We pray that as your people, we can make those things felt and seen and understood in our most present communities. That as we carry your banner, as we bear the name of your son, as we are called Christian, we can live up to the vision for righteousness that you have laid out for people who proclaim your name whether we are members of a political party or not, whether those of us who are members are leaders within that party or just kind of rank-and-file day-to-day voters, whether we sit inside the political structures of our communities or outside of them, we ask that you lead us to use our positions to pursue your ends. Because of our presence, our character, our actions, we ask you to make Christians known in this country as people who free the poor, who, people who make widows sing, people who are eyes to the blind, legs to the lame, people who champion the impoverished and the stranger, who make the crooked places straight and bring the high places low and the low places high. Let your son's character be seen in our actions, be heard in our words, be felt in our hands, so that his name can be glorified. It's in that name we pray. Amen. Thank you all very much for joining us, for praying with us. 
If you want to subscribe to this podcast so that new episodes come straight to you as they're available, you can already do that on TuneIn, on SoundCloud, on Pocket Casts, and on Google Play Music. We're working on getting those feeds for Stitcher and for Apple Podcasts live as soon as we can. If you want to know as soon as we're up on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts, then visit christiancivics.org and subscribe to our mailing list, and we'll let you know as soon as those are live. And if you subscribe to that mailing list, you're also going to get, on, on an ongoing basis, exclusive reflections, devotionals, action items for practicing your citizenship faithfully, all sent straight to your email along with the latest news and updates from Center for Christian Civics. So please be sure to visit our website, christiancivics.org, and subscribe. And we're looking forward to being back with you on this podcast in about two weeks.